In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Father, as I I preach your word this morning to your people, would you convict me? Would you convict us? We have allowed um, true and good knowledge of you and true and good freedom as a Christian uh, to be the very things that stunt the growth of our brothers and sisters and that keep those who are outside the church from knowing the truth in love of the cross. Lord Jesus, would you open our ears to hear? Unplug them, we pray. Give us eyes to see what you're teaching us through your word. Lord, we love you. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. I'll be preaching from the 1 Corinthians chapter 8 text. Um, You're going to need your Bible. I'm just going to put it that way for this one. You're going to need your Bible for this one. So maybe you don't like to use a Bible. Um, Maybe you like to use your phone. We give a special dispensation to the phone users here. If you will stay in 1 Corinthians chapter 8... But the reason I'm asking you to utilize your Bible for this one is because we're also going to spend some time in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 to help us understand what's going on in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Let me begin with this. Um, Imagine for a moment that you have a neighbor move across the street from you. Maybe it's a neighbor and their family. And um, you've, uh, uh, the last sermons over the last several weeks from Father Zach and myself, and by the power of the Spirit, it compelled you uh, to open up your home and hospitality to this neighbor, and so you do it. You go across the street and you invite them into your home, and um, in doing so, uh, by the way, they, they say yes, and so that barrier, that invisible barrier that exists between our homes and this culture is, is broken and they come to your home and you serve them a feast and a meal and you talk about you know, all sorts of things, your life and your children and all this and it's a wonderful, wonderful time. Well, let's pretend for a moment that they return the favor to you, that they show up a couple months later and they say to you, all right, well, hey, we would love to have you in our home and so you go into their home. Now, as you uh, sit down in the living room, you look around and you see a few um, uh, uh, trinkets on the bookshelves and just a couple of like paintings on the walls in the living room that indicate this family might partake in um, new age spirituality. So you're sitting there and you're thinking, okay, like that's one of those kind of cross things. It looks, it's not a cross, but kind of looks like a cross. Okay, you're, you know, you're kind of um, pagan kind of hairs or, you know, hackles are going up. And then they offer you to come into the, uh, to the dining room and to eat. And you begin eating. And as you're eating, uh, one of the family members says, yeah, you know, we were really, really nervous about you all coming over this evening. Because you see, we had set the chicken out um, several, several hours before we went to work. And, and we, were, uh, we weren't able to get back in, you know, what we thought would be enough time for the chicken to not only have been thawed, it might have been thawed too much and have become room temperature and make you sick because you see, uh, we set the chicken out on, uh, we've got an altar back here in the kitchen. You, you might have seen it when you came in. 
and the chicken's on the altar, and we let it thaw there as an offering to, you know, uh, to the, the goddess so-and-so. What are you going to do? <laughs> Put me on speed dial. All right, here, you talk to them. Let's, yeah, you, I don't know. You, you talk to them. What are we going to do? Now, now you, most likely you have not experienced a situation like that, but this is on the ground. This is on the ground Christian living. What are you going to do? What are you going to do once you know that that has been offered to a pagan god or goddess or goddesses or whatever? What are you going to do? Well, I'm going to tell you what Paul says that you ought to do. But before that, let me give some options, though, that you might be thinking through. And the first option is, well, I'm putting my foot in the ground and this is my time to be the Christian I've been called to be. I'm going to stand up. And I'm going to say, the next time I'm coming back, we're exercising your house, and you turn over the tables, and you run out across the street, and you get in your homes, and you lock it, and you try to never look at them again. Um, okay, that's not the option, by the way. The other option is to say, yeah, like, <clears throat> I'm free to, to eat. Yeah, they offered this to an idol here. I know about that. I'm just going to free it. Man, the meat's really good. This is fine, because, you know, idols don't really exist. Gods don't actually exist. So I'm just going to eat it. No big deal. No thing. Or you might be like me, and you try, to, you try to nuance. You're like, okay, they didn't say that the appetizer had been offered to the gods, so I'll eat the appetizer and drink the wine and whatever, and we can kind of halfway kind of move about, about this. I give that example <clears throat> to say that there's actually a way that Christians ought to live in that moment. And there's a way that Paul is going to tell us first in chapter 8, but even more so in chapter 10 in Corinthians, that if you are in a situation in which there was a meal devoted to other gods or goddesses and you know that that was in fact the legitimate case, you can't eat the food. You should not eat the food. You shouldn't. Now, this has also real-world implications for all sorts of things. Hopefully I can close my sermon with a few of those. But there's a lot to hash out here, so let us begin. If you've got your Bible in front of you, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, let's begin looking at this. Paul sets the whole thing, this whole discussion of food sacrifice to idols in terms of knowledge and love first. In terms of knowledge and love. Paul says in verse 1, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess, uh, all of us possesses knowledge. Let me stop here. On the ground in Corinth, okay, um, a Gentile city, there were not only meat markets that sold food that had been sacrificed to idols, you could get it on the cheap, by the way. You could get this meat on the cheap, and you could use it for your family, as it were. People would do that, Christians in particular. But there were also many, many little small kind of miniature temples. And within those temples, you would have people that would bring food to sacrifice to the god or the goddesses, and you could go and feast, almost like a restaurant at these temples, right? So there's, there's markets, there's also temples with kind of restaurants attached to them. And you see, Paul is responding in his letter here, in chapter 8, to a question that had been posed to him earlier on by the Corinthians. Now this is really important. Some of you may have gone through Sunday school and you've read Corinthians a million times and you love it and whatnot. You know it's a very a practical letter in many ways. But you've got to know that 1 Corinthians is actually a second letter. I know that's confusing, but the believers in Corinth had written Paul a letter before this, and they said, look, we've, we've got some issues arising in the church. We need help. 1 Corinthians is his response 
to that letter. So we see here in the first few verses when Paul says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. It's going to become clear that the Corinthian believers and Christians were saying that we have freedom to exercise discretion. We can eat at a temple restaurant or we can eat meat sacrificed to gods in the marketplace and buy that for our home use. We can eat within a pagan Christian's home even if we know that this has been offered to an idol and they're going to give their reasons. But Paul is actually going to push back against some of that here. So here's what he begins with, the difference in knowledge and love. This knowledge, by the way, Paul says, <clears throat> puffs us up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. There are going to be two paths for the Christians, two paths for you and for me in the way that we live in a pagan kind of secular culture. One is simply with knowledge about what we know, and the other is knowledge controlled by love, the most important thing. All right, verse 4. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there are many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods or many lords, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things and through whom we exist. Lot there. Do you actually believe that there are other gods that exist? Do you believe that the Old Testament said that there are other gods that exist? Pretty sure when you read the Old Testament that the Jewish people believed that there were other forces that exist, other small g gods that exist. That's in the Old Testament. That's there. Paul is going to clarify, though, for us in chapter 8, and then even more so in a moment when we get to chapter 10, he's going to say that, okay, on one level, there is only one God, the Creator God, the Blessed Trinity, that Father, the Father in heaven, the Son, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit. There's actually only one real God that exists Okay, but every other gods, small g gods that pagans serve or other religions serve, they are, they're not just like serving empty things. They're actually run by demons. That's what Paul's going to say in chapter 10, that there is a spiritual reality behind what's going on. Are they gods that compete head to head with Yahweh and it's like, well, Yahweh's got this much power and the other, you know, Molech's got this much and they fight it out? No, it's the true God versus the devil and all of the spiritual forces that are actually behind all of what is going on. My first question is, do we actually believe that? Do we believe it? Or do we just say, well, no, there's only one God. All the other stuff is just fake magic stuff. There's just one God, and we're great. Paul's going to tell us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that we have an opportunity, unfortunately, in certain contexts, to maybe knowingly or unknowingly participate in what the devil is doing when we enter into those contexts knowingly eating food that has been sacrificed to idols and being comfortable with that. And I'll talk about that in just a moment. But there is one God, but all of the pagan religions of the world, they are being deceived by demons. And we'll see that in chapter 10. But Paul 
is going to affirm the fact that the Corinthians are right. There is only one God, and he nails it down Christologically. He says, there's one God, the Father from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through him all things and through him we exist. There's one head God, everything else, he'll say in chapter 10, is run by the demonic forces at play. Do you actually believe it? You've got to believe it. As Christians, you have to believe that there are forces behind what is going on in someone's life, in the context of cultural movements in the West, in, uh, in, 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 in pagan countries, in countries that serve false gods. We've got to believe it. Moving on, verse 7. Paul says, however, not all possess this knowledge, the knowledge that there is only one God, okay, one true God, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. Think about the, the pagan Christian who is converted in Corinth coming into the churches there. What do you think they think about the temples that have that are all throughout Corinth in which there are, uh, you know, uh, food sacrificed to idols and these parties. Do you think for them that that's a very e that they could easily be involved in something like that? Well, no, they, they couldn't. Why? Because they were pulled out of that. They were pulled out of that. They're, when Paul mentions the fact that, they, that their conscience being weak, it's weak in the sense that it's, it's uninformed and they haven't gotten there yet to understand that these Rival gods are not true gods that rival Yahweh, that rival, we would say, the Trinity. But as you'll say in chapter 10, as he completes the argument, they're actually demonic forces. He goes on to say in verse 8, Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, or better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak, that this right of yours does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Verse 10, for if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, just imagine that again, seeing Christians in Corinth eating in the idol's temple, will not, that pers will not um, uh, he, that is the person seeing you, the young believer, the weak believer, be encouraged in his, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols. You see, there is, um, we as Christians um, who have, you know, knowledge of our freedom in Christ and these things, we cannot use that freedom in such a way that we are, in fact, inhibiting the discipleship of other believers that are out there. We oftentimes will, will do that. Um, I remember being, uh, you know, uh, being in seminary, but hearing horror stories in seminary. Of, of Christians that come to seminary, and the professor has the truth, like theological truth, but it's in opposition of what that person was raised in. But the way the professor kind of gives it to them, it's almost like as if, hey, you need to go against your conscience here to finally come to the light, and that creates a crisis in the person. Does that, does that make sense? It creates a crisis within them, and then you are becoming a stumbling block to the weak and to their discipleship of our Lord. <clears throat> And of course, in chapter 8 here, Paul is dealing with Christians in Corinth who understand their freedom and understand uh, what that, you know, idols don't actually exist, that those gods don't actually exist. 
demons do, but they don't ex actually exist. And they're eating out, and other Christians are seeing that. But we're going to see in a moment in chapter 10, Paul actually is saying, you need to give it up. You do not need to be doing that. Going to temples, namely, and eating food, sacrificed to idols. Verses 11 through 13 to finish out chapter 8 before moving on. <clears throat> Paul says, and so by your knowledge... The knowledge about idolatry, what it actually is, the true God, and all this. This weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. And again, saying that we are knitted together in Christ's body to utilize our knowledge to basically force other people's conscience when they're not there yet where we are is in fact um, sinning against not just them, but against Christ. Therefore, Paul says, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. I will give it up in my freedom for, in love for the good of my brother. All right, chapter 10. Hopefully this will begin to coalesce here. Because chapter 8 is not the conclusion of Paul's argument. Chapter 10 is, so please turn with me to page 958 in your Bible to look here about halfway through chapter 10. I know I'm skipping over a lot, but due to time, I want to spend uh, time at the end here, chapter 10. <clears throat> Let's begin here in verse 14. And all, 9 and 10 is both relevant, we just don't have time. Verse 14, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Again, Paul's defending himself to the Corinthian people who had written him a letter before this asking his opinion. And here's what's amazing. Paul gives an analogy to Christians going to pagan temples and eating and food sacrificed to idols with the Eucharist. He makes that analogy. It's amazing. Let's read it. <clears throat> here's what he says. The cup of blessing that we bless, that, that is here at communion, is it not a participation, that is a koinonia, a fellowship, an ontological communion, you might say, in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? The sacrifice that we offer here of bread and wine that I say in the liturgy, Eucharistic liturgy, do we not participate in the blood and the, in, in the body? And, of course, the answer is yes. Paul goes on to say, Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. Verse 18. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. There it is. They offer these sacrifices to demons and to God, or not, and not to God. Going on, I do not want you to be participants with demons. I do not want you to be participate, participants with demons. Again, the background here is Christians saying, well, in our freedom, we can go to these temples in which there is idolatry, sacrifices of food, and even sexual idolatry um, at these temples as well, 
that we in our freedom, because these gods really don't exist, we can eat kind of as we want and quote-unquote even be a witness in this situation. Maybe even some of them were thinking that. Paul says, no. When we have the blessed sacrament, we participate in Christ's body and blood. That there's, a, there's a sacrifice of bread and wine being offered to God again. And when you go into a temple, you are partaking, when you partake in that food, you are partaking in something offered to demons. So I do not want you to participate with demons. 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord in the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord in the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Moving on a bit, then I want to kind of close all, tie up some of these, a few of these loose ends. Paul says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. This allusion to love earlier in chapter 8. Love builds up. Knowledge alone puffs up. 24, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. You see, Paul is telling the Christians not to enter the temples and eat the meals that are sacrificed to the gods, not for their own good, but for the good of those that are pagan. I mean, do, do you see this? So let me go back for a moment before we finish this section to that home example. When you draw a line in love and you say, I can't actually like eat this food that's been offered to, to an idol or to idols, to goddesses or, or gods or whatever... When you do that in love, you say, hey, like, I'm, re- I'm willing to stick, let, let's stick around and chat, eat, let me have some of the water. You know, maybe the appetizer wasn't sacrificed, you know, to the god or goddesses, you partake in that. But when you draw the line, like, you, you've got an option. You've got an option to not draw the line based on your own, quote-unquote, freedom. But do you realize, and what Paul's trying to get them to realize in Corinth is this, when you do that, you become so squishy, as it were, they don't know what actually differentiates you from them. You're willing to partake in what they're doing, and there's no distinction. So when you make the distinction that Paul says we need to make about the food, eating that food in those temples, or in the home of someone who's who's said that we've sacrificed it to God, or to a god or goddesses, when we draw that line, that's a mode like of evangelism. That's a mode of letting them see the truth, and we often don't think about it in those terms. Because it's for their good, not for ours. To sit and to say, I've got the knowledge. I know exactly ontologically what's going on in here. There's one God and there's demons are doing this. But look, the meat is just meat. Paul says it. Meat and food is, is just food. He'll go on to say it's all, you know, it's all a gift from God. But if we just sit in that knowledge and in that freedom, but we don't sacrifice um, ourselves and our ability to eat that meal for the other, then what ends up happening? They see us as, as very similar to them. What's the distinction between you as a Christian and them as a pagan. Moving on. <clears throat> Verse 25. Paul switches now to uh, the meat markets. Okay, these are not temples. These are meat markets in which they would be selling um, mostly meat that had been previously sacrificed to idols, but now is open to being purchased a lot of times by the way it was cheaper in these markets. So here we go. Paul says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. A Christian can go and can buy um, meat uh, that have been sacrificed to an idol. But you're, you, just, you go and you buy the meat. You don't really ask a ton of questions. If you can do that in good conscience, you're free to do that. He goes on to give basis for that. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Verse 27, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner. This is a switch now to my first example. 
But if an unbeliever invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. If the unbeliever invites you into their home, even if you see some pictures on the wall or whatever, just you can eat the food. That's what he says. Eat the food. That's great. That's a, that's a form of evangelism, of, of being um, even hospitable in their own home. You're to do that. Eat whatever is set before you without raising any question. But, Paul says, if someone says to you, this food has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you. Not for your sake, for the sake of the one who is hosting you. Because when you don't eat it, you show there's a distinction in between the worshipers of the true God and what we're called to do and what they are doing with their food and with their belief. It sets a boundary. But so much of us, with, or so many of us within our, and I've, I've been there and I, I think I still vacillate here, but yeah, but I'm, I'm free to eat it because it's not going to affect me. I'm one, you know, I'm with Christ and, and I'm one with him. No, it's not about me. It's about behaving in such a way that others will see what we believe and have an opportunity to see the truth and to do that in love. But if someone says to you this has been offered in sacrifice, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. For I do not mean your conscience, but for his. For uh, why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Finally ending. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Beloved, we have so many opportunities in our life in love to distinguish ourselves from, uh, from pagan elements of our culture. We have an opportunity to do that, to restrict our freedom out of love for others that they might see the truth, but we don't often think of it in these terms. Let me close with one example and then three final points, hopefully, of some type of application here. What Paul is not getting at is that person A drinks beer, person B doesn't drink beer. They both have really clean consciences about it, and then they fight about it in the church. That's not like what's going... We're talking about idolatry in the church and whether or not an action is idolatrous or not to be participated in. But let me give you an example, not of, not of food, but of an image. And I do this with fear and trepidation. Um, hopefully you all will see the point that I'm trying to make in, in connecting with Paul in both of these chapters. Um, take uh, the, the rainbow um, itself as an image. The rainbow as an image. As Christians, the rainbow for us um, ought to first bring up uh, what? What ought, ought we think about when we hear? The covenant. The covenant, the Noachian covenant with, between God and Noah that the bow was put in the sky because God said, I'm not going to demolish humanity through a flood anymore, a covenant that is made with people. But we know that, unfortunately, that, that image has been, you know, co-opted, yes, by groups or a group or however you want to name all that stuff, uh, pagan stuff, in an idolatry of sexuality 
those practicing those things have co-opted that image. So it's funny. Have you, I don't know if you've ever been in this situation. Our children get like a sticker book. And there's like a rainbow in the sticker book. Has anyone ever been here and you're like, like I, uh, it's just a rainbow. Like it's just a sticker book. It's like maybe it's even, you know, it's just a benign sticker book and you're thinking to yourself, what? Okay, no, like, look, akin to the food. You don't have to ask questions. It's, a, it's, it's wonderful. It's great. Just, yeah, ha, the kids can have the sticker book or whatever. But here's the thing. When you are in a context, whether it's at work or in a community that you're involved in, where that image is used as shorthand for pagan idolatry of sexuality, then you actually should not be partaking in utilizing that image. There's a, there's a, there's a similarity there. But you see, it all deals with the context. It all deals with um, not only with one's conscience, but also what's being communicated. Paul says there's a difference in Christians. You're free to go to the meat market and buy the cheap meat and cook it in your home. You can do that. What you're not free to do is to either go to a temple in which they're sacrificing meat and doing these things and partake in that freely because you're going to, to destroy the weaker consciences of your brothers and sisters and you're free to eat in a pagan's home. I mean, just imagine, it's like Paul is giving an implicit kind of evangelism here. You should be in the homes of pagans eating with them. And don't ask questions, eat the food. But if it comes up that it's been offered to gods or goddesses other than the true God, you can't do it. Don't do it. Restrict your freedom out of love for your brother or sister in one, on one hand, and the pagan in the other so that they might see the truth. You see, the temptation for the church at large is twofold. <clears throat> One, it's to become, you know, uh, cultural warriors all the time, always just saying, well, I enjoy drawing lines in the sand, and those are those people, and I'm here, and I'm super Christian. No, no, no. Paul says all of this is in love. It's in love. But the other temptation is to be syncretistic about your faith, to be so squishy about drawing lines and certain issues and things that come up in the culture to the point where like there's nothing really that distinguishes you from them other than a few list of propositions that you believe about God. There's a middle way. And the conscience is where we find so much of that. So when we talk about catechesis and Sunday school and the preaching of God's word and reading scripture and learning, it's so that our conscience might be formed on these things. <clears throat> Three applications. First, our freedom and our knowledge about who God is and what we're free to do and not do and all those things is no good if it's not in the service of love for our fellow brothers and sisters in the congregation and for those who don't know God out in the world. Knowledge itself puffs up. Knowledge with love will build up. It's not about you and me. Paul says it. It's not about you in the restriction. It's in doing so, you're giving an opportunity for the other to believe. Number two, our lives really can be evangelistic without us being really preachy. <laughs> I've been preaching. I've been preachy here for about 30 minutes. Sorry. But we have to, I've I got to preach. I'm compelled to preach. But evangelism can be lived in love with lines drawn, okay, in love, and that those lives can be just as evangelistic 
as being kind of out in the world and just, you know, kind of quote-unquote letting people have it. The third thing is this. In the end, once you have been brought into the freedom that is life in Jesus Christ, your life is no longer about you. It's no longer about you. It's no longer about me. It's about your, your family, your fellow brothers and sisters in this church, in the world. And some of us, including myself, need to learn from Paul here. First, the spiritual warfare behind all of it is real. And so when we draw lines, we're doing so um, in a way that can be saving for another. And I would say, finally, the second is this. We're all along the way in discipleship. And when we sacrifice our freedom for the good of another Christian's discipleship, where we don't destroy their conscience with knowledge, but in love we allow them to come to the truth by themselves, people really grow in maturity to Jesus our Lord. So, beloved, as we have dealt with Paul's difficult words, and there's so much more that could be said or even debated on this, I pray that you would ask the Holy Spirit to help you live lives of being able to draw lines in the sand where you should and giving up your freedom, but doing so in love for the salvation of the world. Amen.